Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast and become a Coast Insider to hear the rest of this fascinating conversation and check out recent shows featuring guests sharing stories about growing up in a haunted house that was possessed by an evil presence, a nightmarish encounter with a UFO in the dead of night, and the financial horror stories from those who won the lottery and lived to regret it. Head on over to coasttocoastam.com and sign up for Coast Insider to hear these programs and many more truly thought-provoking shows from coast to coast. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Ryan Peterson is a biblical researcher and writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew thought and theology. He received his B.A. from the University of Rochester and his J.D. from Columbia University Law School. He's the author of Judgment of the Nephilim. He resides in the New York City area with his family. Ryan Peterson, welcome to Coast to Coast AM. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thank you for having me. So uh, most of us, or many of us, rather, are familiar with that passage in, in Genesis uh, that, that mentions the, uh, the sons of God uh, sort of commingling with the daughters of men and creating this hybrid, these um, Nephilim. Where else in the Bible do we hear about the Nephilim? Sure, great question. So Genesis 6 certainly is the first place we see them, but the, um, the giants certainly appear throughout the Old Testament before and after the flood. The most notable account of the giants, um, of course, being David and Goliath, and, you know, which is probably one of the most well-known biblical accounts ever. And the interesting thing is that, it, you know, it's commonly accepted when one reads the Bible or is in Sunday school class that Goliath was a giant, but there's no real context given as to why, what, why he had this supernatural size. And so in the book, you know, just, just for example, we go into, you know, to really, the, a lot of the idea behind the book was really to get into the, the details the Bible gives to certain historical events and certain figures where it's trying to draw a very important point for us to look at. I mean, you look even at Goliath, where he describes his, his height being six cubits in a span. And, of course, you know, the, the Egyptian cubit was anywhere from 18 to 21 inches. So, you, so putting his height anywhere, he could be anywhere from 9 to 11 feet. And even the weight of all his armor is estimated to be, a, you know, a roughly 200 pounds. So this was someone of, of a immense superhuman strength. So there's just one example. In Numbers 13, of course, another famous account of uh, the, the 10 spies that Moses sent to scout the Promised Land, of the, sorry, the 12 spies, where 10 of those spies came back doubting that Israel could conquer the promised land and, and capture it as God promised to them because they saw three giants, Ahimon, Seshai, and Talmai. And this, of course, is in Numbers chapter 13, who were the sons of Anak. And, you know, it's interesting that, again, when you look at it in the broader context, Israel had just come out of the Exodus. They just saw God perform the greatest series of supernatural plagues at one time, you know, to, to, uh, to force their release from Pharaoh in Egypt. The, cr- the crossing of the Red, the parting of the Red Sea had just taken place. And right, so they saw all the supernatural works of God, and yet all it took was seeing three giants who, you know, and you go to Numbers 13, you know, they said that the, that the spies said that we were as grasshoppers in their sight. 
And it just took three giants for them to say, we cannot take this land and doubt that the God that had just parted the Red Sea, that had just conquered the Egyptian armies for them, they lost all hope in the, in the face of three Nephilim. How can we be certain, Ryan, that the, the, the giants described in Numbers and Genesis are in fact the, the offspring of the fallen angels, the sons of God? Uh, for example, uh, what is the, the etymology of, of the word Nephilim? Sure. Well, the, the etymology, so there, there are several definitions that are commonly used uh, for, the, for the Nephilim, but I, I tend to go with, you know, with these, they're often described as either being tyrants or the fallen or something of that nature, looking at the Hebrew word, but I actually have a different, go with a different definition. I believe it really comes from Aramaic. It's really a borrowed term from Aramaic, and that it, really, it, it really just means giants. And so in the book, um, I, I, I quote a 19th century source, a 19th century researcher, Francois Lenormand, and he basically explains, he cites, you know, the, the Targum, the Kessel, the Syriac version. So he's referencing all these older manuscripts of the Bible, of the Old Testament, rather, where Nephilim just means giant. It explains that that root of Nephil, of Nephil even Nephila, referring to a, a giantess, that all that was used throughout history, throughout Hebrew history, and it just meant giant. So it, that's, that is the actual etymology of the word Nephilim. And I think that we can find the support for that, and that when you look at, say, the Septuagint, which we cite in, uh, in Judgment of the Nephilim, it is, and, and that is the oldest extant version of the Old Testament, you know, of course, translated from Paleo-Hebrew to Greek, the word giants is used, or gigantes in Greek, but giants is used throughout. So that, to me, provides good confirmation historically, as well as grammatically, that when we're looking at the word Nephilim, it actually means giant. Something that has always uh, troubled me, and that is, I've never been able to wrap my head around this, my my perception, and it may be incorrect, is when I think of the angelic realm, I think of angels and fallen angels, I think of spiritual entities. So how then does an angel or a fallen angel have relations, or shall I say, how does it reproduce with a human woman? Right. And so I think a lot of the common perception of angels is that they are immaterial, that they're ghost-like, and so of course it raises this question. And so in, you know, in the book, I, I devote a, a chapter to this, because it's an important question. And the first thing to establish is that, the, that angels themselves have bodies. They have a physical presence in, in the earthly realm. They can manifest with a physical presence. And so there are just a number of examples of that. So uh, in Genesis chapter 18, when two angels along with God visit the home of Abraham, they wash their feet, their feet are washed, they eat food. Um, so they clearly have a physical presence. Uh, in 
at Sodom and Gomorrah. The two angels came to rescue Lot. They they come into Lot's home. They can they can push. They pull Lot back into the house. They can angels can physically interact with human beings. They can attack people. They can kill people. And so, and even you know in the Psalms, they refers to man and says that men did eat angels' food. So even the, from a physiological standpoint, they eat food that humans can actually eat. The same manna that was falling from heaven during the time of the Exodus in the wilderness, the, 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 the psalmist says that, that was, that's food that angels actually consume. So they clearly have a physical presence that they can manifest. And what is really interesting, though, is that is a passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that not only explains that angels have a body, but also explains that angels have a seed. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, verses 36 to 40, you know, it's, it's a very interesting passage. Paul, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about the resurrection of the dead and how, what happens, what happens to the, to the body when you are resurrected to a, to a glorified, eternal body in heaven, for, if you're a believer. And what we read there, and I'll just quote right from the right from the passage, it says that thou and that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that the body that shall be, but bear grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. So what this is saying is that you don't to raise up a, a plant you have to have a seed. And it says, But God gives it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. And so I think this is where the Bible is informing us that there is a celestial flesh. I believe that's the angelic body and the terrestrial, the human body. But that every being, every creature that God has made that has a body has a seed. And so that and seed, of course, refers to DNA, reproduction, genetics. And that's where um, I think we can establish biblically. And then you take that and you combine it with the testimony of Genesis chapter 6, where it says the sons of God went in unto the doors of men and bare children. I mean, that's a very clear reference to sexual relations leading to the birth of a child. Then you take the testimony from the book of Jude, where we learn, where, where we read that the angels who sinned, who left their first estate and sinned and went after strange flesh, it compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, talking about fornication. Second Peter chapter 2, again, making the same reference, so that the, there is a certain sect, subgroup of angels who rebelled against God for the specific sin of fornication in the days of Noah. I think when you put that all together, you have a very compelling case. The Bible is telling you that not only are angels physical, but they actually have a seed and can reproduce with human women. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.